Section 7, DeFi 2.0. In the first chapter of this section, we covered the core building blocks of Web3. NFTs, or identity and unique digital asset primitives, the blockchain registered lands of the metaverse, and the decentralized hardware networks that will host it all. The next three chapters, then, are all about how we manage the virtual world's financial systems, scale their infrastructure to accommodate billions of users, human and machine, and govern them over time. Start with developments in the decentralized financial system, or DeFi, as there has been a ton of new development this year despite most DeFi blue chips living through a relative bear market. Many are down 80% or more versus ETH year-to-date. Before we dive deep into DeFi, let's start with the currency that bridges us from the old world to the new, Tether. Section 7.1, the USDT Bridge. Much to the chagrin of Bitfinex, RIP, and short sellers everywhere, it's unlikely that Tether will fail or put an end to this crypto bull market. If that were to happen, the death of Tether's USDT would much more likely come at the hands of a U.S. government seizure than a bank run from the company's depositors. With Tether, things are never quite as they seem, so I get the mainstream confusion. It's actually pretty simple, and I'll reiterate last year's entry on Tether, saying, Tether's de facto boosters, major global crypto exchanges and market makers, are likely to gloss over USDT's risks in the absence of obvious replacements to the near-universally accepted dollar-denominated reserve. The muted market impact of this year's settlements, NYAG and CFTC, may have lulled some to conclude the worst-case scenario in Tether would be an orderly move into other stablecoins. But it's one thing to send money from one platform's perpetual contract to another's, like we saw with BitMEX last year. Quite another to port seize dollar reserves to new banks. Tether is the ultimate digital euro dollar, and a lot of people trust USDT not because they have done business with Tether at scale, though many have, or because they believe the USDT reserves are fully backed, at times they haven't been, or because they are comfortable being complicit in a global conspiracy. Nobody's got time for that. But rather, because at the end of the day, they have to trust Tether, and the system has worked so far. It's inaccurate to call Tether a fraud, and it's also a clear way to out yourself as someone who doesn't know what they're talking about. There's a lot of legitimate companies that work with them at scale. USDT remains the reserve trading currency for most of the world's largest exchanges and trading pairs. It's not particularly close. USDT is an order of magnitude more liquid than USDC or BUSD. Even Coinbase added support once it got out the door for its IPO this spring, and they're a co-creator of USDC. Tether has published two audits of their reserves already this year, reducing concerns that the company is running a fractional reserve. The company settled with New York's Attorney General $18 million and with the CFTC $41 million, relatively paltry sums for something that critics decry as a Madoff-sized Ponzi scheme. The company's fib about commingling funds after the 2016 Bitfinex hack and customer bail-in paid off and likely saved customers and the industry in the process. Would it have been better to tell the whole truth and destroy the underlying market? Yes, the company shuffled funds around in 2018 to cover for the $850 million that was stolen by an unscrupulous partner during some insane, under-the-table, Panamanian and Eastern European banking transactions, but even that's at least partially on the U.S. government. Tether wouldn't have had to resort to such desperate counterparty measures if U.S. banks would take on regulated crypto customers in the first place. I know it sounds like I'm making excuses for bad behavior, but that's not it. My point is that we all hold our noses and accept crypto's cowboy for what it is, a bridge to mainstream adoption. Coindesk's 
Mark Hockstein nailed it with his parable, A Bridge Called Tether. Tether is the most convenient but rickety rope bridge that spans the mountaintops of the legacy finance world and the crypto finance world. It's shady as a service by design, less exposed to seizure risks due to the jurisdictional arbitrage it relies upon. It's also likely to get replaced at some point, even if the terminal date remains unclear. I think of Tether as the Omar Little of crypto. Everyone knows Omar breaks the rules, but the man lives by a code. Everyone in the game respects him, even if they fear him. And regulators should know by now that when they come at the king, they best not miss. R.I.P. Omar. USDT share of stablecoin market declined from 80% to 50% this year. But Tether's structural importance to crypto exchange settlement remains intact. USDT really should be in the market's infrastructure chapter and USDC in the DeFi section, given its explosion as a DeFi reserve. But I didn't want to separate Paxos and USDC. I was also sick of editing. Section 7.2. DAI versus UST. There have been numerous attempts to challenge DAI as crypto's leading decentralized stablecoin, but all have failed so far. Is this time different? Following a set of upgrades and top-tier integrations, Terra's UST, the fastest-growing decentralized stablecoin of 2021, is positioned to give DAI its strongest challenge yet. On September 30th, Terra underwent its highly anticipated Columbus 5 upgrade, which spawned dozens of new applications and enabled Terra to expand its reach cross-chain through Cosmos' Inter-Blockchain Communication Protocol, or IBC. A new insurance protocol in Terra, Ozone, helped add the $3 billion of UST via Luna Burns to its community treasury within mere weeks. In addition, the cross-blockchain bridge, Wormhole V2, launched support for Terra, bringing Terra UST to Ethereum and Solana. Momentum for UST is accelerating, and it's now positioned to become the de facto interchain stablecoin. Though MakerDAO attracts criticism for its lackluster token price performance and is generally less sexy compared to everything else happening in DeFi 2.0, it has never been in a better position fundamentally. MakerTVL is in an all-time high of $20 billion, and DAI supply recently surpassed $8.5 billion. The most impressive part of all this growth is that unlike nearly every other DeFi and stablecoin competitor, MakerDAO has provided no incentives to use its platform, all of its growth has been organic. Despite its new competitors, DAI is still the most widely integrated decentralized stablecoin in the industry and the preferred decentralized stablecoin on Ethereum's DeFi ecosystem. That's thanks in large part to its four-year track record of stability. If the most important attribute of a stablecoin is survival, DAI stands in a league of its own. It's survived multiple brutal drawdowns and proven its resilience, something competitors can't replicate so easily. Diverse UST comes down to Ethereum's DeFi dominance. One thing UST has in its favor is that it's not even trying to compete with DAI on its home turf. Instead, UST is building its own ecosystem on Terra and aggressively expanding multi-chain. If crypto continues evolving to a multi-chain future, the winning decentralized stablecoin may be the one that proliferates across the broadest ecosystem of blockchains. Terra is marching in this direction while DAI continues to serve primarily as an Ethereum reserve. There's plenty of room for both. Section 7.3. The Algorithmic Stablecoins Renaissance. Following a mini-hype cycle in Q4 2020, algorithmic stablecoins crashed violently and entered a long trough of disillusionment early this year. But we're seeing a renaissance in the sector today. 
powered by two new innovations, fractional reserve stablecoins and protocol controlled value. First though, what do we even mean by algorithmic stablecoins? Here's an excerpt from a thematic research piece we published on the sector earlier this year. Most first-generation algorithmic stablecoins trace their origins to a paper written in 2014 by Robert Sams titled, A Note on Cryptocurrency Stabilization, Seniorage Shares. Sams described a stablecoin model which involved two tokens, a stablecoin and a token that shares in the system's seniorage, profit for new issuance. When demand for a stablecoin increases, the price of that stablecoin rises above $1 expansion, and the supply of stablecoins must increase. New issuance is distributed to shareholders until demand is met and the price comes back to the $1 equilibrium. The opposite happens when demand falls. When the price of the stablecoin falls below $1, contraction, stablecoins are removed from circulation through a burn mechanism in exchange for the issuance of new seniorage shares. What this model does is effectively bifurcate the system into a speculative asset that absorbs volatility and backstops the system, and a stable asset that is the object of stabilization. This sounds simple and effective on paper, but brings up two obvious limitations. Downward reflexivity can create bank runs on these protocols, and the lack of collateral backstop means the bank can legitimately go to zero. Reflexivity propelled early experiments ESD fracks to great heights, then annihilated them on the way down. Seniorage shares in these systems are only worth something if buyers believe in the ongoing viability of the systems and the positive net present value of their future monetary supply. When heavy redemptions hit quickly, it crushes confidence and chills reinvestment in the share tokens, causing a death spiral. Without any collateral backstop to offset the spiral, algorithmic stablecoins are dependent on outside lenders of last resort to bail them out during severe conditions. Users or bag holders need to step in to save the system, or the shares in stablecoin will fade to oblivion. Then there's the bootstrapping challenge. You need to reach a sufficient level of market capitalization and bootstrap enough liquidity to ensure fluctuations in demand won't cause significant volatility in the stablecoin. However, in the absence of genuine early demand for a given stablecoin, you need to manufacture that demand through incentives to speculators. That speculation fuels reflexivity, but the more reflexive a stablecoin is, the less stable and useful it is, and the greater the perceived risk of a future liquid crisis in the protocol. Fractional reserve models and protocol-controlled value have changed the calculus for algorithmic stablecoins. Fractional reserve stablecoins pioneered by Frax Protocol build upon the idea that there is a sweet spot between over-collateralized and pure algorithmic stablecoins that allow for a scalable, capital-efficient, decentralized stable value asset. The fractional reserves dampen reflexivity during protocols of contraction, offering stablecoin holders one-to-one convertibility between stablecoins and underlying collateral, and generally provide greater confidence in the peg compared to purely algorithmic models. In the years since Frax's launch, it's reached $1 billion in circulation and has maintained a tight peg throughout the year, including the May crash. Protocol Controlled Value, PCV, was pioneered by Fay Protocol, which functions similarly to a giant MakerDAO vault. What makes Fay different is that the protocol owns the assets under deposit to the system, not the individual LPs of the vault's collateral. 
Bay is not a loan against collateral so much as it's effectively a sale of collateral assets in exchange for a stable coin. The system features two assets, Tribe, a governance token that can provide a backstop in bank runs similar to MKR, and Fay, the stablecoin. Fay is able to do virtually whatever it wants with its treasury assets, much like a depositor-governed bank, once they are deposited. Fay can deploy balance sheet capital into lending and staking pools across DeFi or by other reserves. That flexibility has created organic demand for its stablecoin and reduced reflexivity so far. It's unclear if these improvements will be enough to challenge DAI for decentralized stablecoin supremacy, but the iterations in Fay and Fax seem like a step in the right direction. Section 7.4 The Emergence of Non-Pegged Stablecoins When Bitcoin was born, it captured the imagination of its early adopters who began to seriously consider the potential for non-sovereign digital currencies. Bitcoin's promise as a currency was long-term. It would likely remain volatile for a long time, but its believers thought it would eventually stabilize once it built its user population and liquidity. To this day, Bitcoin remains incredibly volatile. It plunged more than 30% in a single day this May despite its $750 billion market cap, and it's unclear whether Bitcoin will ever achieve stability given its inflexible supply. The builders of the crypto economy aren't waiting for Bitcoin to stabilize. To bridge the gap, we've witnessed a rise in dollar-peg stablecoins to solve crypto's volatility bug and catalyze adoption for blockchain applications beyond hodling. But early iterations have presented a new problem. Stablecoins have dollarized our blockchains and have put the entire crypto economy at systemic risk in the process. A currency ultimately pegged to and controlled by the Fed and Treasury limits our ability to build a truly sovereign monetary system. That's what led to the launch of a new wave of projects this year, aimed at creating free-floating stablecoins which are unpegged to fiat currencies. Non-PEG stablecoins offer an opportunity for the crypto economy to achieve stability while eliminating its dollar dependence. The controversial but indisputable leader of this movement is Olympus DAO. Launched in March 2021, Olympus incentivizes users to bond tokens, DAI, ETH, LP tokens, etc., to its protocol permanently in exchange for a new token called OM. The protocol attracts liquidity by offering OM at a discount to the value of the collateral received, though newly issued OM can only be redeemed at par value after a vesting period. The game theory has been powerful so far. In eight months since its fair launch, Olympus has accumulated $700 million in treasury assets and rocketed to $3.5 billion in market cap. Olympus DAO is now a behemoth with a hand in multiple sectors of DeFi, as it's realized a significant premium thanks to the faith its users have in the protocol's ability to conduct effective monetary policy at scale. If Olympus DAO were to accrue a treasury worth tens of billions of dollars, it might have the resources to stabilize a $100 billion non-peg stablecoin, much like how central banks around the world stabilize their own currencies. If all of this sounds weird to you, you're not alone. Non-PEG stablecoins are undeniably a lot to wrap your head around and deserve skepticism. There are Ponzi-like game theory attributes of the protocol that drive interest and participation, and it's unclear how those will hold up amidst a broader crypto sell-off. However, judging by the number of forks it has spawned, Olympus DAO may be the year's most important new project, and non-PEG stablecoins may be the best bet this industry has when it comes to de-pegging from the U.S. dollar. Section 7.5, WorldCoin's Steely Gaze. WorldCoin launched this fall with some impressive backers and an audacious goal. 
get a fair launch digital currency into the hands of 1 billion people by tying their retinal scans to a unique verified identity. They use zero-knowledge cryptography to secure the identities on-chain and an incentivized network of ORB operators to onboard new users $10 at a time in return for looking into the metal scanners. The early results sounded impressive. Look, I know this sounds bad. Yes, it involves a metal iris scanning orb built by the folks working on OpenAI. Yes, the goal is to airdrop a new world currency and 20% is owned by wealthy seed backers. Yes, the onboarding model relies on door-to-door techno-Mormons getting paid $10 per convert willing to store their biometrics on these new devices. Yes, the manufacturer's name is undisclosed, and that could end poorly. Yes, the orb does look like the Death Star on its side, but with a fresh wax. And an iScan-eligible digital currency was also the currency of the Galactic Empire, I think. But what if it works? As Bailagie pointed out, Face ID scans hundreds of millions of faces per day. Can we articulate a difference between that versus WorldCoin or any similar opt-in technology for proof of human? If you run any service with more than a few trusted users, you'll immediately discover the need for some kind of proof of human. Not necessarily the state's old-fashioned and bureaucratic KYC impositions, but something. Otherwise, you'll have bots, frauds, trolls, fakes, etc. In his mind, and the minds of the backers, you want to be able to distinguish good users from bad ones, to protect community members' identities and privacy while also powering the new pseudonymous economy. That means progressives discover that you can build stateless money. Libertarians discover that you then need to rebuild something much like a state, identity, reputation, anti-fraud, custody, trust, community. I haven't been able to make up my mind because there will be second-order and third-order effects that we can't anticipate, good and bad, if this early experiment is at all successful. Section 7.6, Uniswap V3 versus the world. We're going to dive a little deeper into the plumbing of DeFi now, so this section will assume you have a working knowledge of the basics. If you don't, I'd encourage you to read the DeFi chapter I wrote in last year's theses to come up the learning curve on automated market makers, AMMs, yield farms, vaults, flash loans, oracles, impermanent loss, and more. This report is long enough already, so I'm assuming a little bit of prior knowledge. For this particular section, here's a good refresher on decentralized exchanges and how they work. We're only going to talk about one particular DEX today, though, as some people think Uniswap V3 could eventually subsume all of the other Ethereum's DEXs. They certainly have a head start, even if they flattened out somewhat thanks to Ethereum's gassy, bloated chain. But most of the focus more recently has been in providing the infrastructure and tools to power more liquid markets and competitive market making. That's a smart progression as the DeFi world becomes wallet-centric versus destination-centric. Uniswap has 3 million users, while MetaMask has 10 million-plus users. The biggest difference in V3 is that liquidity providers are active. Instead of depositing assets into a pool that passively provides liquidity along a deterministic price curve, liquidity providers actively adjust the ranges of buy-sell liquidity, which are then aggregated by the Uniswap automated market maker. Dubbed Concentrated Liquidity, These tighter ranges help improve capital efficiency by orders of magnitude through better concentration of liquidity around current market prices. They also reward professionals and punish retail LPs. 
B3 allows for what are essentially limit orders by market makers and introduces customizable trading fees, 30 BPS, 10 BPS, 5 BPS, 1 BPS, that incentivize liquidity providers to make new markets on otherwise illiquid pairs. These upgrades should combine to attract more professional market makers who actively monitor shorter-term liquid positions. Lazy liquidity provisioning will no longer be profitable and help Uniswap better compete against other centralized and decentralized exchanges where it had previously struggled to keep pace due to its low expected spreads, e.g. like-to-like pairs on curve. Concentrated liquidity is clearly the future of AMMs, and V3's early success speaks to that. Uniswap has increased its DEX market share to 70 plus percent since launch. Whether non-AMM DEXs featuring order books ultimately prevail is something you can decide for yourself. It's one of our most thoroughly covered sectors in Masari Pro as the spoils of success are sky high. Section 7.7 PERP vs. DYDX you might have seen the batshit crazy headline in Bloomberg last month, new DeFi perpetuals platform DYDX briefly surpassing Coinbase in nominal trading volumes. Yes, the early token incentivized trading rewards helped, but this was also coming from a newer network that had carved out U.S. customers for even using the protocol. The centralized exchange's perpetuals volume dominates spot volumes, and I'd expect DeFi will be no different. That makes PERP and DYDX attractive relative value plays to spot DEXs for the year if you're looking for a 70 IQ idea. The biggest unlock this year for decentralized derivative exchanges was the launch of L2s. Historically, these exchanges were infeasible on the Ethereum base layer due to slow transaction settlement times and high cost, requirements for PERPs to flourish, frequent Oracle updates, liquidations, etc. Perpetual Protocol grew up on Ethereum sidechain XDAI and has since launched its V2 version on Arbitrum. DYDX launched on its own application-specific ZK rollup earlier this year. In both cases, increased transaction throughput, lower latency, and lower fees enables these types of projects to finally work. Derivatives outside of Perpetuals are a different story. They're complex, non-linear, difficult to price, generally less lucrative given the lower demand. There are some experiments worth watching, like Antimatter's Everlasting Option and TracerDAO's bull and bear tokens that attempt to neutralize volatility decay. Arthur Hayes can explain better than I can, but the real action will continue to be in perps, and the real battle to watch is DeFi perps versus sex perps. Section 7.8, The Alchemix of DeFinance 2.0. The simplest breakdown I've seen of the path from DeFi 1.0 to 2.0 came from Molly, but this wasn't half bad as a visual of where we are in crypto's hype and installation cycles. The hottest family of tokens you'll hear about if you talk to anyone in DeFi circles are the DeFi 2.0 crew and anything with protocol-controlled value. SQP tries, and Sam tries to explain this better than I might, but I'll try to Eli 5 here. First, some context. The DeFi boom started 18 months ago with Compound's yield farming program. Then, and still, a preferred incentive scheme among DeFi projects has been to offer native token incentives for liquidity providers, LPs, to underlying DeFi protocols. It's juices early liquidity in these systems, and everyone from market makers and Uniswaps, AMMs, lenders and borrowers in Aave, vault holders in Yearn, etc., have flocked to the protocols with the highest risk-adjusted returns, which include protocol revenues and token-denominated liquidity mining rewards. 
These capital providers were critical during DeFi's bootstrapping period, but have diminished in value over time because they're fickle. The capital they provide is hot, and they move from project to project. LPs are more like locusts than humble farmers, as they create a perpetual expense for protocol treasuries and relentless selling pressure. Some projects saw this and realized yield farming 1.0 was unsustainable. Instead of creating native treasury token yield farms, they began to create liquidity-as-a-service schemes that rented liquidity from other protocols. We've already talked about how Olympus and Fay leverage this model. Olympus DAO pioneered bonds, which sell native OM tokens at a discount in exchange for Olympus LP shares. Faye's partnership with Ando Finance opened the door for projects that put their native treasury tokens to work in Faye as collateral assets. Faye would match contributed collateral with its stablecoin Faye in return for liquidity over fixed periods of time. Tokimac created a decentralized market maker that directly connected to the DAO treasuries willing to lend their native tokens to the DEX in return for Toki. In all these cases, liquidity is now being provisioned at the DAO level rather than the liquidity provider level. Protocol-controlled liquidity is a subset of protocol-controlled value. Protocol-controlled liquidity is about DAOs provisioning liquidity using their token treasuries. Protocol-controlled value is about DAOs monetizing their balance sheets more broadly. As mentioned earlier, Olympus DAO now has a treasury worth more than $700 million in non-native assets and is putting those assets to work in DEXs, lending protocols, yield aggregators, and even venture capital. That improves the returns of the DAO. Its treasury assets generate yield and reduces its cost of capital. The DAO doesn't pay external sources for its liquidity. Higher revenues, lower costs. This is the biggest unlock of DeFi 2.0. Beyond new models for liquidity provisioning and balance sheet monetization, this year has brought the dawn of automators, enhancers, and extenders. Automation protocol rebalance liquidity positions across AMMs and Layer 1s, recycle rewards, and provide auto-compounding services. Convex Finance is one of the leading examples. They recycle CRV token and Curve LP tokens for boosted rewards, trading fees, and governance tokens. Enhancers are protocols that do not introduce new operating models for DeFi, but rather recycle the outputs from existing protocols to optimize returns for the end user. A good example of this is abracadabra.money, which is similar to MakerDAO, but with the important difference that it creates CDPs from yield-bearing assets and has much looser risk controls. Extenders are protocols that stack various underlying DeFi protocols. Alchemix is a good example. Its vaults function similarly to MakerDAOs. The protocol also rehypothecates its collateral assets and deposits them into yield aggregators like urine, creating yield-generating synthetic tokens which look like self-repaying loans. The rehypothecation creates risk as the protocol absorbs the risks of the lower-level protocols it's built on. Still, self-repaying loans. Critics will point to subprime mortgages and other derivatives and note that DeFi 2.0 will have a significant garbage-in, garbage-out problem with cascading failure risks. Others will greedily and literally invest in the magic internet money, $5 billion in liquidity in six months. I'll be honest, I haven't yet wrapped my head around all of this and whether it's all moon math or a new substantial financial model. Section 7.9, The Fat Applications Thesis Crypto is going modular at an accelerating rate. Ethereum plans to rely on a roster of Layer 2 execution platforms like Optimism, Arbitrum, Starkware, and ZK Sync. 
Ethereum competitors like Solana and Avalanche have developed formidable parallel DeFi layers and user bases. Cosmos has unlocked cross-chain communication, bringing its multi-chain IBC universe to life, and Polkadot's parachain auctions have finally kicked off. In other words, the shift to a multi-chain future is here, and it's creating a massive opportunity for existing DeFi brands to extend to new ecosystems. An Ethereum-only strategy may not be viable for those hoping to capture most of crypto's growth in coming years when most basic transactions become uneconomical on Layer 1. When users end up on Layer 2s or competitive Layer 1s, the market for liquid, trusted financial services will reward multi-chain applications. Most DeFi blue chips have already figured this out, though they generally fall into four baskets. 1. Ethereum-centric. Protocols deploy copies of their contracts only to Ethereum Layer 2s like Arbitrum or Optimism, e.g. Uniswap. 2. Spray and Pray. Protocols deploy copies of their contracts to any EVM-compatible chain or Layer 1 sidechain, e.g. Sushi will launch anywhere aside from Tron. Number 3. Targeted EVM Destinations Protocols deploy copies of their contracts to EVM-compatible chains or sidechains once these networks have shown some initial promise, often accompanied by a native liquidity mining program. Curve and Aave have been open-minded when compared to Uniswap, but more strategic than Sushi. And four, DeFi Hub, Independent Chain. Protocols launch a new standalone chain with the potential to connect with multiple networks. Compound Chain is a prime example. There are no silver bullets. Each approach comes with distinct trade-offs. The Ethereum-centric approach aligns with the vision and values of the Ethereum faithful, one of crypto's largest and wealthiest DeFi use bases. In theory, brand recognition should enable these applications to dominate their respective market sectors wherever they deploy, which already seems to be the case for Uniswap v3, as it's outpacing other DEXs built on Optimism and Arbitrum in daily trading volume. But the Ethereum-only strategy prevents Uniswap from capturing breakthrough assets that trade on other networks. The spray-and-pray approach usually rewards projects for being one of the first applications on a new network, increasing the chance they can corner the market in that ecosystem, and can increase gross volume and free revenue if executed well. It requires more work for potentially negligible returns, splits liquidity, and introduces more tech debt. The spray-and-pray poster child is Sushi, which has launched on 14, 14 different chains. Despite the effort, 95% of its total liquidity is on Ethereum, Arbitrum, and Polygon. Sushi isn't the largest trading venue in most of its new locations, suggesting this model might not be optimal. Targeting upstart chains once they exhibit sufficient user growth is a logical strategy. It ensures that new chains will have some organic demand and projects can often attract incentives, avalanche rush, in return for their migration. Curve and Aave have used this strategy to near perfection as they leveraged external incentives and their prominent brands to become some of the largest applications on each new base layer chain they join strategy isn't foolproof. It's viable for DeFi blue chips, but probably not upstarts. And it's likely to react to effectively capture the early growth of smaller networks with cult-like communities, Moon River. The last approach is the most interesting, launching an independent application-specific chain, which becomes a protocol's new home for cross-chain integrations and liquidity. 
Sovereign chains are chain neutral by nature and might improve a project's defensibility, difficult to fork. Token economics, for stake validation means the token has fee capture and security properties and its potential to become a central hub for activity. The substrate-based compound chain is an example of DeFi blue chip going rogue and thinking outside of the EVM box. There's a high upfront cost to attain the technical and economic resources required to build and secure a new chain, but it might be the most lucrative path. Chris Berniski wrote three years ago that interoperability of state and value is likely to place downward price pressure on layer one blockchains that have no monetary premium while enabling strong middleware protocols to achieve cross-chain winner takes most dominance in their respective services. This thesis hasn't materialized yet. The infrastructure to enable seamless multi-chain usage is immature. Base layers have instead continued to grow fatter, but as we're now in month 16 of a DeFi bear market, it's worth betting on the resurgence of the fat application thesis. I still think Chris will be proven correct, probably sooner rather than later. Section 7.10, Tokenized Funds and Index Co-op. One thing I learned in reading four years of Hester Pierce's speeches one night recently, four more years, four more years, Hester, was that the ETF space itself is less than 30 years old. Didn't know that. I also didn't realize ETFs account for essentially all of the growth and innovation in the fund space since 2000. The number of mutual funds has been declining, while ETFs have ascended to 20% of global assets under management in open-ended funds, remainder are mutual funds. Despite their track record of success, $60 trillion in total net assets, lower management fees, and higher net returns for their investors, each new ETF application uses an exemptive application process that requires SEC permission for each new product. Wouldn't you know it, Commissioner Pierce has pushed to codify the exemptive relief standards for ETF sponsors so they can get new ETF products to market faster. She thinks that would drive competition, give investors more freedom, and allow more creativity to flourish in the ETF space. That there hasn't been any innovation in the now $30 trillion fund market since the birth of the internet is fairly alarming, especially for the financial capital of the world. It's also one reason I'm bullish on projects like Index Co-op, which makes it simple to create a custom index of tokens using smart contracts. The index methodologists get rewarded for crafting and marketing new products and are incentivized to get them distributed across DeFi. Early examples are how DeFi Pulse monetized its index, the DPI, and how Bankless helped create the BED and GMI tokens, all with pretty basic market cap weightings to boot. This should be the tip of the iceberg. To illustrate how much customization we could see in the crypto index space, consider the credit rating agencies and the ESG ratings agencies. Moody's and Fitch may have helped cause the Great Recession with their pay-to-play consistency on subprime mortgages, but at least they followed a similar rubric. The ESG providers are all over the place. There's no common methodology or standard for sustainability, and each provider simply provides a subjective lens through which to view responsible investments, likely based on the decreed politics of the day, but I digress. Where are the downsides to constructing more creative and subjective indices in DeFi? There's opportunity for smart beta products, sector-specific plays, portfolio copy trades, and more. The biggest near-term opportunity could be shadow stonks, like we've already seen on synthetics, mirror, UMA, etc. 
Consider that the total value secured by Chainlink Oracle's smart contracts that leverage their data infrastructure is now $75 billion, up 10x year over year, and you have the foundation for something big. Reliable Oracle data, synthetic stocks, co-op smart contracts. All we need are CNBC talking heads for distribution, and we're full stack, fam. Maybe illegal, but big. Section 7.11 DeFi's split personalities. David Vorick of Skynet said, DeFi has a dirty secret. While the smart contracts themselves are fully decentralized, developer teams still have substantial control over the user through their control of the front end. We're excited to be announcing Homescreen, a new application on Skynet that allows users to fully decentralize their Web3 front ends. We know from this summer that authorities are generally not fans of DeFi. My guess, as you know from my chapter 4, is that things will get worse before they get better, and we'll see a bifurcation of DeFi into CDFi, known teams, and a non-Fi, pseudonymous developers. More often than not, the split will be on front-end tooling, not protocol-level hindrances. When the front ends of popular DeFi products tied to centralized DNS or ENS names controlled by the core teams, it creates censorship risk and security issues. Some front ends can insert malicious code to e.g. steal user funds. In either case, DeFi can lose credibility with regulators who will either say, well, clearly you do have the ability to comply with our rules, so you're definitely a securities offerer, or this is rife with fraud and bad for investors. That's what drove Sia's Skynet team to announce a new project called Homescreen, a push to secure unstoppable front ends in Web3. I think Homescreen, or standards like it, will be critical in the U.S. as U.S. DeFi developers get pushed to the shadows under the watchful eye of Sauron. Within three years, half of DeFi's development may be pseudonymous, cutting-edge, open research, and the other half may be CDFi integration points. Both are good. In my opinion, a non-fi and truly permissionless front ends is where we should be fighting like hell and testing the limits of code and law. No one wants to defend the developer and maintainer of a tumbling service that intentionally sells to darknet customers. We do want to defend the teenage garage hackers who are playing with magic internet money and creating new primitives for global finance. They're heroes. Screw the haters. Section 7.12 The CD-Fi Boom one of the most mind-melting things of the year happened when French banking giant Societe Generale submitted a public proposal through MakerDAO's governance forum to have their new bonded tokens approved as collateral for $20 million in DAI. This is the bull thesis many of us had in our bull case for ubiquitous public blockchains, that institutions would do what they had previously done in peer-to-peer -peer lending marketplaces and enter the space when it was legal and sufficiently liquid to do so safely. That doesn't make this flowchart any less maddening. Sosgen is hardly alone. We had EY gear up to launch permissioned polygon chains, the deliciousness of R3 spinning up a DeFi token on Ethereum, Visa's plan to build a Layer 2 stablecoin network connecting public blockchains and future central bank digital currencies looks more ambitious than anything else. It's the sort of thing we should be shouting from the rooftops because it normalizes stablecoins and fluffs central bankers at the same time. Oh, we're just keeping the seat warm for your CBDC. Don't worry, it's not like that with USDC. As Stani said, institutions are still practicing before aping into DeFi. My bet is the majority of DeFi users and volume are KYC'd within the next couple of years. That seems positive and arguably the only sustainable medium-term path. 
and it could open things products like fractional reserve banking and off-chain credit scoring to be determined if we want those things. That still leaves the question of whether institutional entrance to DeFi will tip protocol governance so firmly in the regulated direction projects begin to fork in compliance code at the core level and turn into walled gardens. Don't tell me this is FUD and also tell me that proof-of-stake systems are resistant to the majority rules coercions. I'm not saying I like this potential future, just that it seems like a non-negligible risk. Section 7.13. Governance Snafu. Compound is sort of responsible for the entire DeFi farming craze and bull run these past 18 months, so I suppose we'll give them a pass on the colossal oof of accidentally sending $160 million of tokens to users this fall during a routine protocol upgrade, then scrambling to reclaim the tokens through a series of offsetting governance proposals. To the community's credit, they got a bunch back. They weren't the only ones with issues. Uniswap took flack for its $20 million no-strings-attached grant, read, no minimum holding period, to the DeFi Education Fund, which resulted in a quick 50% sale of Uni for USDC. The community doesn't want to be dumped on, sirs, even if you're spending the dollars on really important policy work, as designed, given DC's politicos still prefer greenbacks. Crypto analytics firm Flipside saw this and said, hey, we won't dump on you. Give us $25 million in collateral for community-enabled analytics, and we'll hodl, stake, and make money off the float. Pretty clever, but alas, that too drew controversy from an angry competitor, and the proposal failed. A16Z had a good, nuanced no vote. We're going to talk more about governance in Chapter 9 on DAOs. Sit tight until then. For now, suffice it to say that I am super mega bigly bullish on governance infrastructure, improvements in protocol treasury development, and ongoing DAO distribution models that pay users, individual contributors, and other businesses and DAOs alike. It's foundational tooling that will lead to DAOs replacing most companies. Section 7.14 Security and the Dark Forest DeFi governance looks more like Veep than House of Cards today. Nothing sinister so far, just earnest contributors hacking away at how to make decentralized ops less terrible. We haven't found many governance bugs just yet in the dark forest, but there's still plenty of contract bugs. MEV front-running, flash loan manipulation, and rug-pulling to keep security researchers plenty busy at night. User funds are frequently at risk, even in secure browser wallets. Exchanges get hacked, keys get lost in boating accidents, people get SIM-swapped, protocols get exploited. Risks compound because the systems themselves are complex. Come on, you are not investing in crypto for the risk-free rate. You're of above-average sophistication already if you're aping into DEX-listed tokens via MetaMask, and you recognize that technical risks are a part of the risk premium you signed up for. It sucks to get exploited. I hope it doesn't happen to me or anyone, and we need to mitigate the mega-flops as best we can. But exploits do serve a purpose and help strengthen the broader ecosystem's security immune system, which is important while we're still building on the fringes with more risk-aware end-users. There has never been a better time to be a security researcher or insurance salesman. We're now at $250 billion plus in total value locked in smart contracts across various protocols. That's a lot of cheddar to come after. Ethereum security researchers have had their hands full enough, and now high fees are pushing more at-risk assets to brand new chains with less sophisticated user OPSEC stacks. 
Ethereum is down from 98% of TVL to 67% today. Three things to keep an eye on this year. Number one, smart contract insurance like Nexus, which became the first crypto insurance unicorn, but not the last, I'm sure. Number two, verified secure smart contract libraries and securities as a service. For example, Forcha offers an enterprise-grade runtime security platform that detects system-wide threats through a network of node operators incentivized to look out for foul play. In non-gobbledygook, it's a central nervous system for DeFi. Stub your pinky toe or simply feel a chilly breeze and Forcha's network could send that message to the right brains quickly, possibly serving as a circuit breaker in the future. Number three, bullish in perpetuity on smart contract security researchers. Spoiler, I've invested in the first two, and I'm happy to invest in a Samson ISA token if he ever does one. Seriously, this is the most epic story of the year, and no one in the MSM is picked up. Samson found a $350 million bug in SushiSwap, which, remember, ripped off Paradigm portfolio company Uniswap Labs' original code and likely saved the project and its users. He's the Mr. White Hat we need, not the one we deserve. BZX team holds a grudge, I think, because I quipped the project was a bug bounties as a service in last year's theses. Not super nice, but clever. Also, they got hacked again. Section 7.15. Bullish unlocks and FDV. Fully diluted value is a pretty crappy metric for ecosystems managed by well-functioning DAOs versus centralized foundations. And I say this while representing a company that helped popularize the metric, use the related research to identify some pretty scandalous shit in multiple projects, and generally can't pull the trigger on buying tokens with large treasuries because I'm in the middle of the IQ bell curve. The better way to think about token unlocks is a bit more nuanced, sort of like how you'd expect a board of directors to consider new stock issuances, except the board in this case is a large distributed community. Coinbase has 10 million of authorized Class A common shares, but just 155,243,470 outstanding. That does not make their fully diluted valuation $5 trillion. Yet. The same can be said for many new protocols. What matters is dominion and control over the tokens. You want to know how much of a given token supply is controlled by whales. For foundations, founders, VCs, etc., it's relevant to know their lockups, their position, their sizes, and their intentions, but it's not definitively negative to see concentrated positions across given networks. Ethereum has done just fine despite Joe Lubin's early stash, and you might like Sol because you know that SBF is diamond handing 30% of the supply. That's not true. I'm just spitballing here. People are starting to come around to the bullish unlocks meme and use of treasury as a network demand versus depressant. There's more trust in VCs to be professional secondary sellers on the way up than panic retail sellers on the way down, too. So FDV likely matters more in well-distributed tokens than ones with big, long-term oriented backers. Masari Enterprise. Unlock the full potential of Masari with Enterprise. We monitor key sources and channels for all the top projects to give you the best insight. Get instant updates and analysis of all major events, changes, or decisions around protocols. Receive 15% off with offer code theses underscore 22. Again, that's theses underscore 2022.